Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 64 with... Joseph Marcos and... Joseph Biebler. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So we're back for another edition of Six Birds You Might Not Have Heard Of. Haven't heard of. Might not have heard of. Yeah, maybe you have, but maybe not. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so yet again, we have a guest with us. Hi, how are you doing? All right. You want to introduce yourself to the, to the audience? Sure, I'm Rosalind Spencer. I am also the editor and creator of Rigorous Magazine. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Rigorous? Sure. Uh, Rigorous Magazine is an online magazine that celebrates works of art by artists of color and it's edited by artists of color. Great, thanks. We'll put a, we'll put a link to that yeah, in the show notes, too. Um, what's the, I'm curious, what's the format of your magazine? Do you do a, is there a print edition? Is it an online thing? Is it... it is right now online only. Okay. And, of course, when we went in, we decided to be able to let other artists be able to define their artwork and their art, we decided to, of course, have no comment section. So it is definitely an online magazine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't think. I don't think. I don't think every website needs to have comment section. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think for literary magazines, it's probably a bad idea. Okay, great. And then, uh, what's your? Do you, are you like a type of magazine that you, you're always, always bringing content out on a weekly basis, monthly basis, or is there a? It is a quarterly basis. Okay. So we uh, put out four issues a year. Okay, nice. Very cool. That's that's a good way to do it. I think it's yeah. pretty pretty frequent, <laughs> but it's not overkill. You can that's manageable four issues a year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, always, I've always thought that that would be the ideal thing too to come out. Like it gives you this nice time to be able to like curate and not be pressured to put out more content um, that you're not happy with, where you can take time with it and really be patient and uh, present a nice vision for each edition. That's like just like really thought thoughtful. Yeah. Do you have themes or is it just? No, we uh, don't do things. We usually fall in love with an artist or their work, and it kind of just ends up flowing that way. And, of course, one of my editors, Kenny and J.P. Garcia, they are in love with anything Afropunk, so we tend to also <laughs> have a lot of Afropunk and avant-garde poetry Very cool. included. Nice. Awesome. And uh, just, just so people can, I don't know, just so people can... Get on there right now if they want to listen to the podcast and just keep you know because it'd be cool to listen to the podcast and surf the, surf the sure. site. What's the site? It's a rigorous-mag.com. Thank you. All right, so check that out. Um, you can you can take a look at the site while we're talking today. Uh, Tell you about some poetry you might not heard of. All right, so how are we gonna start this out? You want I, I I can I can start out with uh with my with my found object. Uh, so you have so. I guess you're gonna have to first describe what you have here because okay. that's half the. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this this sort of one from like the back forward. I mine is, today is gonna be this object called poems by or uh, sorry on blue note poems by William Corbett, and it's this it's this uh, box set jobber here and it's like a thick inch plus box set and it's got this cool sticker on the front 
uh, that's been applied to this this handmade linen linen box. It's got two uh, volumes in it with a nice printing on the spine, and one is a cassette tape. You open that one up, and it's just a single cassette blueprinting. 24 minutes and 13 seconds on side A, 26 minutes and 57 seconds on side B. I'm sure everyone wants to know the running time yeah. of the cassette. Okay, so it's sections. It's actually sections one, two, three, and four. And there's a book that comes along with it. So when you've listened to the cassette, it's the same thing that's in the book. It's, it's, it's the author reading it. Yeah. yeah. Do you know anything about William Corbett? No, I was going to have to look that up. Actually, I think we could maybe, maybe I can quickly look up William Corbett, but. I, 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 what's really funny is that I sort of just approached this from a different direction. I, I didn't know exactly what, um, this is the first edition. This is from 1989 out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Zoland Books. Okay. Yeah. Well, do you want to read, read a poem out of there? Sure. I'll read this first poem part two. What did you expect? What you most hope for, impossible, to put into words, no system satisfies, no theory convinces. Why things are like this, even as it fits. Who wants it? Who needs to know? Too much rain, too little in September. Early frost, the tree, the trees are drab. Their leaves trashy, like cheap bright clothes washed once. The, the truth hurts. Halloween tomorrow, so why wear your mask today? Ghost on the face to come. It's a free country. Children say, try and make me. <laughs> Is there one in there that relates to the title? No, I'm going to read the bio at the back. Okay. There's a bio in the back there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it says William Corbett was born in Norfolk, Virginia in 1942 and raised in Pennsylvania, Connecticut. He has lived for 20 years with his wife and two daughters in Boston South End. About the, about the book, On Blue Note has been printed by G.A. Damon, Inc., West Ruthland, Vermont, and bound by General Bookbinding Company, Agawam, Massachusetts. The text was set, uh, has been set in New Baskerville and on the Macintosh computer. Wow, that's cool. The paper is Bellbrook laid on acid-free paper. The book has been designed by Virginia Evans. Hmm. So that's kind of cool because it's like, it's like, um, uh, it's, an, it's a 1989 design Macintosh book. Early, uh, early computer design. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a really neat little uh, neat little piece here. Let me, let me, uh, there's a Philip there's a Philip Gustin poem. All right, try it. Yeah. 191980. Dear Philip, the rain held off for Marnie's graduation. That was this afternoon. Yesterday I wrote you, but you were two days a dead man. John called this morning to say, "Oh no." No, is this what we always let out? Oh, no. And at least he... Well, you did live to see your grown, grow up by force of will. Your life, the paper reports, you called it, is a triumph. And that's what I wrote yesterday. To you, sir, I write today of your ferocious delicacy. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that'd be neat if there were more books that had a audio companion. Yeah, it's interesting. It definitely is interesting. I feel like these are like maybe poems that he wrote to while listening to music or something like that. Was there music on the cassette or it's just... No, it's just... Okay. Yeah. I wanted to know if maybe there was like him reading over music or something. Because that could be cool. 
Well, nice. So that's William Corbett. I don't know how in the world you would find that if you wanted to. No idea. But where did you get that from? I think it's an ISBN number. Where did you get that? I don't know. I think. Oh, there is an ISBN number. Yeah. Oh, so maybe it's out there. Maybe it's out there. Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> um, I think I just got it at like, like a weird book festival or a book fair somewhere. Or maybe maybe not. Maybe I got it at a thrift store. It seems like it could be a thrift store find. Yeah, I think, it was a, I, think I got it at a thrift store. <laughs> Rosalind, you want to tell us about one of the poets you brought with you today? Yes. Um, she is one. Um, I don't know if you guys have read, but. Alice Walker talked about in Search of My Mother's Garden about going back out and pulling out an author or a poet that was um, lost, whose voice, especially when it comes to uh, Black women writers, that was lost. And this one, actually, I feel kind of guilty for um, her being unrelated and not seen by me, but I loved Audre Lorde and Audre Lorde to write these uh, letters, these beautiful in-depth letters of struggle of being a black queer writer during the time of civil rights and before and it was to a woman named Pat Parker and actually Pat Parker is this unbelievable and phenomenal poet and she's just starting to get her renaissance again Um, they just released her complete works as of the end of last year but she's that aunt that you know down the street who um probably had a beard was sitting on the porch. She came from Texas. She did a lot of advocacy. She was very upfront where we remember R.G. Lord having that temperament of being uh, a bit more softer and easier <laughs> to take in. Pat Parker was, you know, just there. Her, I love her poems because they're so, um, they're stark. They're, they're kind of deconstructed and they're, but they're still narrative. So, I, um, I've been having a little love affair with her for the last six months because I didn't realize that I remember reading these letters and I have uh, non-fiction works on Audre Lorde, but I didn't notice her on the fringe and on the outside. So <laughs> Pat Parker's my first one. All right, let's hear one. Um, she wrote this poem, My Lover is a Woman. My lover is a woman, and when I hold her, feel her warmth, I feel good, feel safe. Then I never think of my family voices, never hear my sister say, bull daggers, queers, funny. Come see us, but don't. Bring your friends, it's okay with us, but don't tell mama, it break her heart. Never feel my father turn in his grave, never hear my mama, mother cry, Lord, what kind of child is this? My love, lover's hair is blonde, and when he rubs across my face, it feels soft. Feels like a thousand fingers touch my skin and hold me, and I feel good. Then, I never think of the little boy who spat and called me nigger. Never think of the policeman who kicked my body and said crawl. Never think of black bodies hanging in trees or filled with bullet holes. Never hear my sister say, white folks' hair stinks, don't trust any of them. Never feel my father turn in his grave. Never hear my mother talk of her backache after scrubbing floors, never hear her cry, Lord, what kind of child is this? My lover's eyes are blue, and when she looks at me, I float in a warm lake, feel my muscles go weak with want, feel good, feel safe. Then I never think of the blue eyes that have glared at me, moved three stools away from me in a bar, 
never hear my sister's rage of syphilitic black men as guinea pigs, rage of sterilized children, watch them just stop in the intersection to scare the old white bitch, never feel my father turning his grave, never remember my mother teaching me the yes sirs and ma'ams to keep me alive, never hear my mother cry, Lord, what kind of child is this? And when we go to a gay bar and my people shun me because I crossed the line and her people look to see what's wrong with her, what defect drove her to me. And when we walk the streets of the city, forget and touch or hold hands and the people stare, glare, frown and taunt at those queers. I remember every word taught me, every word said to me, every deed done to me. And then I hate, I look at my lover for an instant doubt. Then I hold her hand tighter and I can hear my mother cry, Lord, what kind of child is this? Wow. Yeah, I, I I did. I loved RG Lord, but when I read her, I was like, holy shit, where have you been hiding? Um, that was amazing. Yeah, but I, I love her. She has that narrative and um, the more and more I find out about her, she, um, she wanted... And she reminded me of Houston that she wanted to break free from that mode of being heavy in metaphors and uh, figurative language that she wanted it to make her own. So she used the narrative form when she did that. So uh, I really enjoy her. I have the book on the way. And like I said, because she just started her renaissance. Yeah, it was hard reprint. to get it before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so they're finally reprinting everything. So, um, but I like how that. But it, but it, I mean, I mean, I don't know about. By the way, you're saying she's trying to move away from. But I like how that poem used both. You you think it's in that tradition of love poems when it starts out. Yeah, <laughs> and then it turns on that. It does. That's it twice, why I like right? It. And it does it two two different times. Yeah, and um, Lord, of course, talks about it. But I love the fact that she talks about. When everyone tries to describe intersectionality, that poem literally is the uh, definition of intersectionality, of being a woman, of being black, of being queer, and how they all intersect and constantly are an aspect, not only of her art, but her life and every action that she takes. So that, yeah, I, um, I love that poem. That's one of my favorite ones that I've gotten familiar with. Just, just hearing it, I couldn't tell, but yeah, since you have on page, is was that rep, is that repeti- repetition in there in some kind of form there? Or is it just yeah? She does these breaks, and when she does them, there's a break, and then lets you know that's the moment where all of the outside world comes crashing in. Every time that she has that, you know, that moment of relaxation with her lover, that reality keeps setting in. So yeah, she has um, she has the breaks, and she has it of course broken down into uh, four stanzas so you see the trajectory and the, the evolution of this relationship is love and I like that she shows that there's that doubt yeah definitely yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah no I, that some some of those things are just so specific I mean I don't know like that the part of when of her taking her lover to the bar and saying they they're like inspecting her to see what 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 imperfect what must be wrong with her that she's with her yeah and um the fact that it's uh 
it's still so relevant and still yeah, yeah. Timely. Oh, did you want to read another one of hers? Or? Oh, no, you just broke one. Oh, her. yeah, That's no, fine. I have That's another one. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other one that there's quite a few, but I chose Jonestown. Uh, she grew up in Houston, Texas, working class. So, um, and she actually ended up dying uh, before 50 uh, cancer, but. She wrote this one called Jonestown, and it says, as a child in Texas, race education was simple, was subtle, was sharp. The great long stars stay sharply placed me in colored schools, with colored teachers, with colored and colored books, and colored knowledge. I shopped in white stores and bought colored clothes. Keep the colors loud and bright so they dazzle in the night. No matter where a nigga's bread, they love yellow, orange, and red. I used colored toilets and rode colored buses home. I went to colored churches with colored preachers and prayed to a white God. Begged forgiveness for Cain and his sins and his descendants, us lowly colored sinners. And the message was simple, was sharp. There is a place for niggers, but not among good white folk. At home, race education was simple, was subtle, fact gleaned by differences. The white man who jumped free fall in the sky was quietly dismissed. White folks are crazy. The white man who turned somersaults and sports spectacular skis was quietly dismissed. White folks would do anything for money. The white man who shot and killed his wife and children and then himself received a handshake and a sigh and a simple statement. White folks are crazy. And the messages fell into place. White folks went crazy and went to nut houses. Black folks got mad and went to jail. White folks owned America, black folks built it. As I grew into adulthood, many messages were discarded. Many were forgotten, but one returns to haunt me. Black folks do not commit suicide. Black folks do not. Black folks do not. Black folks do not commit suicide. November 18, 1978, more than 900 people, most of them black, died in a man-made town called Jonestown. Newscaster words slapped me in my face, people's tears and grief emanate from my set. And I remember the lessons when we hear a childhood message. Black folks do not commit suicide. I thought of my uncle Dave, he died in prison, suicide. The, author, the authority said, boy, just jumped just up and hung himself. And I remember my mother, her disbelief, her grief. Then white folks killed my brother. Dave didn't commit no suicide. And the funeral, a bitter, quiet funeral, his coffin sealed from ciders. And we all knew Dave died, not by his hands. Some guard decided that he should die. And I stare at the newscaster. He struggles to contain himself. It's a big, big story. And he must not seem to excite it. American troops made a grisly discovery today in Jonestown, Jonestown, Guana. My inner scream as facts unfold, a communist preacher and I see old black women, my grandmothers, communists know, little old black ladies do not believe in communists, they believe in God and Jesus, yet the newscaster words of commune, a media storm of words and pictures, interviews with ex-members, survivors, city officials, the San Francisco Chronicle had a problem with its presses, erratic delivery of the morning paper, and in two days, the Chronicle publishes a book, eyewitness account by a staff reporter who survived. The port attack, airport attack, and the story grows. Step right up, step right up, ladies and gentlemen. 
have I got to tell for you? We got these men, two men, a congressman and a preacher and supporting cast of hundreds. The congressman went to investigate the preacher and wound up dead. The preacher wound up dead. The supporting cast wound up dead and all the dead are singing to me. Black folks do not, black folks do not, black folks do not commit suicide. My phone rings, newscaster mistakenly says, Patricia Parker, not Parks, died on an asterisk. A friend wants to know, are you alive? Yes, I am here, not there, festering in a jungle with bloated belly, not a victim, in a dream deferred, not at peace in a media puzzle, not a member in a supporting cast. Yet I am there walking with the souls of black folks, crying, screaming, why, why? Black folks, why are you here and dead? Tell me how you willingly died. Did the minister sing to you, Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid? Tastes great, I like Kool-Aid, can't wait. I see black people, beautiful black people in lines in front of a tub, a 20th century hemlock. I see guards with guns, 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 why guns? And the pictures continue to flow, images of a man, a churchman, he cures disease. No, he's a fake. Hired people treated liver. He loves God. No, he's a communist. He talks many messages, revolution to the young God, to the old. He believes in the family. No, he destroys the family, fucks the women, fucks the men. And the media continues to tell the tale, an interview with a live one. You remember the People's Temple? Yes, I was. Why did you join? Well, I went there a few times and then I stopped going. But Reverend Jones came to me by my house and asked me why I quit coming. I was really surprised. No one had ever cared that much about me before. No one had ever cared that much about me before and it came home, the messages of my youth. Youth came clear and black people in Jonestown did not commit suicide. They were murdered. They were murdered in small Southern towns. They were murdered in big Northern cities. They were murdered as school children by teachers who didn't care. They were murdered by policemen who didn't care. They were murdered by welfare workers who didn't care, by shopkeepers who didn't care. They were murdered by church people who didn't care. They were murdered by politicians who didn't care. They didn't die at Jonestown. They went to Jonestown dead, convinced that American Americans didn't care. They died in the schoolrooms. They died in the streets. They died in the bars. They died in the jails. They died in the churches. They died in the welfare lines. Jim Jones was not the cause. He was the result of 400 years of not caring. Black folks do not, black folks do not, black folks do not commit suicide. And um, <laughs> that one stuck out to me um, just because she talks about uh, the trauma that people forget and the trauma that causes. And, um, even growing up in the 80s and 90s, they still said that, you know, you there was it was a it was taboo, it was a hush. You no, that didn't happen, it would never happen. So, yeah. um, and like I said, that's why I love her, and I'm really happy that there's a renaissance for her because she brought up something that is just truly being discussed and talked about now. And she was talking about that 40 years ago, and um. When she was talking about Jonestown, I was like, oh, no, there weren't any black people. And then when I went back, I felt a little shade because I was like, huh, because in your mind, you do, you kind of separate. And when they talked about Jonestown, when I was growing up as a small child, it really was uh, a separate thing. It was um, it was something that was other. It was something that 
oh, those people just chose to do that. But yeah, so uh, that's why that stuck in my mind because I can remember my grandmother telling me about it and it just, you know, it stuck in my mind because I realized that even I had rewrote it in my head as something other than what it was. So, yeah. I liked all the connections she makes in Zoom because I, a lot, when you said the title was June, I thought that's what it would be about. But, and, but she's talking about all kinds of yeah, all she's these other aspects of it. Yeah, actually chose to yeah. run off and follow this leader when they're not, you know, normally you're warned, you're told, you know, don't trust these ministers. But when they come knocking on your door and they say they care, and you're told constantly that everyone around you doesn't care about you, then you'll follow them and you'll drink that Kool-Aid. So, yeah, I uh, I was like, whoa. So, <laughs> yeah, that one, that was the one that really stuck in um, my head. And uh, she did this crazy quote when she was like, um, there's this quote I read from her and I laughed and then I got quiet, but she was like, your foot is so tender and soft and small, but it's still on the back of my neck. <laughs> and, um, wow. Yeah. So yeah, that's I. That's why I enjoy. She's uh, she's um, in your face. She's just, yeah, yeah. That was intense. Drop it. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed it though. It, it was really <laughs> intense. I, I, I. Yeah, I I do. I um, I do. I I enjoy those attempts, uh, character narrative pieces, and you know it's. I guess it's different from what people see me in my everyday life because I deal with advocacy and a lot of things. So I have to, my temperament has to be very um, calming. Yeah. I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> when I choose to read things, it's a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's some, there's some reprints of her books out there. That yeah. They, uh, the complete works. And then in 2016, <laughs> 17, 8, they one just with three points of hers, uh, longer pieces. But yeah, there's a, a renaissance of people starting to celebrate her and study her more. And I um, am really excited about that because she does. I, I'm glad that she's getting that. I'm kind of sad that they did, you know, you had to do Audre Lorde first and then Pat Parker and they couldn't be together. But still, I'm happy that they're both being recognized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I'm going to talk about first uh, Joan Murray. So this is another, I think, kind of forgotten poet. And I really only found out about this on accident because I happened to be in New York and they were doing a release for this, this really nice book from New York Review of Books, which is her complete poetry drafts, fragments, and poems, and I'll kind of talk about that, how that came to be as this as this went about. So she was born in London, but then she kind of spent her life between the U.S. and Canada, back and forth. But I guess when she was in New York, she briefly studied with Auden at the New School, but then she died really young. She died in 1942. She was only 24 years old. She had some kind of heart condition because she had had, oh, I think I know. She had a rheumatic fever when she was a child. And so she had this undiagnosed heart heart condition from that. So she died at the age of 24. So she hadn't published anything. But Auden remembered her poetry from when 
he had taught her at the, at the new school. So that year when he, he was judging the Yale Younger Poets Prize, and he didn't like any of the manuscripts, <laughs> so he called her mom and was like, well, look, I remember really liking her poems. Do you have a manuscript? I'd like to publish that posthumously for the Yale Younger Poets Prize. And her mom said, yeah, yeah, but... She was like, I, you can have it, but you need to let her friend, oh, what was her friend's name? Her friend, she had this friend who was some kind of poet, Grant Code, and her mother stipulated that he had to edit the manuscript. Now, I don't think he had any ill intentions, but, you know, and part of it was a lot of it, she had not organized it into a manuscript, but. He maybe kind of regularized things a little too much. She was doing things where she was purposely not punctuating and doing strange punctuations and inventing words and doing things. And he kind of standardized it into something. And it kind of changed how the poetry was a little bit. So that was the only thing that was ever published. And I think it was pretty well received at the time, but people forgot about it very quickly because it was the only thing. It, it came out there and then it was gone. And it really kind of got forgotten about for a long time, I think when Ashbery did those other traditions essays, the other tradition lectures and essays, he mentioned her in there, but in passing, he wasn't one of the ones he focused on. But then in 2006, poet Shannon Compton, C.A. Conrad was doing that Neglectorino project for Philly Sound, trying to get different neglected poets up there, and Shannon Compton got the PDF of that younger poets manuscript and put it up there because it was out of print. It was well, pretty cool. much impossible to find. Um, and so she was kind of thinking about that. And then Mark Ford did an essay on her called Joan Murray and the Bats of Wisdom. We'll read that poem with the Bats of Wisdom on. And said, mentioned in it how her mother had later given those manuscripts to Smith College. But the story was that along the way, there were two trunks of the manuscript, and one of them fell off the truck and was lost. And so that there were these other poems out there that no one knew about that weren't in the, the Younger Poets Prize manuscript. So, um, you know, and then the story came out that it had been tracked down, and it was there, and it, the trunk even had a dent in it, so maybe that story was true. So the poet who edited this, Farnoosh Fathi, uh, was a big fan of Joe Murray's poetry. So she went to Smith immediately and said, I want to see this. I want to see this trunk of this undiscovered, of these undiscovered poems. And there were hundreds of pages of this, this poetry that hadn't been seen before. And there were hundreds of letters and the letters are in this, in this volume too. And it's really good. Um, it's really interesting poetry. I mean, it, it kind of feels like in some ways, some of that kind of late modernist stuff of the time. But there, it, she's, there's some nice idiosyncratic things about it that I think are, are different. But I don't know. So this is the most famous one. Most of her poems don't have title. So Sleep, Little Architect. It's your mother's wish that you should lave your eyes and hang them up in dreams. Into the lowest sea swims the great sperm fish. If I should rock you, the whole world would rock within my arms. Your father is a greater architect than even you. His structure falls between high Venus and fair Mars. He rubs the magic of the old and then peers through the blueprint lies the night, the plan, the stars. 
you will place mountains too when you are grown. The grass will not be so insignificant, the stone so dead. You will spiral up the mansions we have sown. Drop your lids, little architect. Admit the bats of wisdom in your head. <laughs> I like that. Uh, and that's kind of the most, I think, because of the bats of wisdom. Like she has something with the, the architect as an image that goes through a lot of her poems. It's, it's interesting. I haven't quite figured it out. <laughs> And uh, how old was she when she died? 24. Long. <laughs> yeah, which is a whole other level of thinking about it. <laughs> That's young. I don't know. I, I think I might just read one more from her. I have a hard time deciding which one. Um, she has a lot of ones with seagulls, too. She likes seagulls as imagery, which I, which I like. Even the gulls of the cool Atlantic retip the silver foam. The boats that warn me of the fog warn me of their motion. I've looked for my childhood among pebbles, my home within the lean cupboards of Mother Hubbard and clipped Albion. A wind whose freshness blows over the cape to me has made me laugh at the memory of a friend whose hair is blonde. Still we laugh and run our hands over the sea from the farthest tip of the land of the end of the end. I had so often run down to these shores to stare out. If I took an island for a lover, an Atlantic for my sheet, there was no one to tell me that loving across distance would turn about and make the here and now and elsewhere of defeat. In my 21st year, to have the grubby hand of a slum be the small child at my knee, knee the glistening chalk that sails to meet the stationary boat, the water sloping as it comes, and all the Devon coast of gray and abrupt rock, by gazing across water, I flicked many gulls from my eyes, shuffled small shells and green crabs at my feet. The day is cool, the sun bright, the piper cries, shrilly tampering the untouched sand with delicate conceit. Up beyond the height and over the bank, I have a friend. How are your winter days and summer actions? There could be little more than a teacup hour to make us comprehend a mature man's simplicity or a grave child's sweet reaction. So that's June Murray. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very image-based poetry, but I really, I like her kind of, she's got an interesting take on the way she puts her images together. <laughs> And yeah, that's this one. I'll, you know, this one's not hard to find because it just came out last year. This is her Joe Murray Drafts Fragments and Poems, The Complete Poetry um, from New York Review Books. Magos, you want to tell us about your second poem? I can't pick a poem. Well, you know, I really, maybe I should just pick a poem because this thing, this, this piece is the piece that I want to read the most. It's like really dense. I don't know. Uh, Carl Howell So what is the book that you're flipping through here? Okay, so this is this is this really cool book that uh, that I've had for a while, and I've, I've just recently picked back up. Um, it's called Out of Everywhere, Linguistically Innovative Poetry by Women in North America and the UK. Alright, I want to I look at that. That sounds cool. $3.98 at half-price books in October of 2008. Uh, there's, this, there's this poem that I've been drawn to that I'm going to read. I'm going to approach this one through the poem, but it's by Carlisle Reedy, 
uh, is a poet best known for her multimedia theater and performance artworks. Her poetry is featured in the anthologies Children of Albion, Penguin 1969, uh, Myres de Angleterre, 1984, Brago Book of Love Poetry, Poets of Writing, Britain, etc., uh, etc. Et There's a bunch of poems. Carries an uh, essay, some works, among her publications, more publications. I don't know. She's published a bunch of books. Okay. <laughs> um, this is this book here was published in what year? God, this is early. This is in 1996. Okay. That's early. I mean. Okay. <laughs> Okay, it's called The Slave Ship. Chain beat me to death, 3 a.m., the second chattering against the door tonight, I not slept, I, all its ring, links, only clank, smoke, lost return of the bone of my body. Head, temple, all over, to neck, breast, in pagan blue, plunging, eyes so naked, intake to belly, buttocks, charms, they put you under. It is not good what is used, what chains they put in you, the whole of the ship, on end, the human end, the white voices, sometimes some one against us, sing, change in the immortal, save the body next to you, would not rot hot all the time in the hold, it does not heal, do not hear, I want to hear, I believe, I be the story of blue, black, work of God, the voice come down through a hole, words fail, it is impossible. When he die, the rumble of his throat put like if this death, then he twist up stiff going on. Share in the nowhere like to live on the truth, live without any food but truth after. She's never right in her head after and die. Many. Poor prince, she thin all the time. He walk around because the test is hard. We don't know where he, if I only care. She not yet for a while, only an old self I went down. Make a living a while, if it does not. This is like a, it's almost like a two voice piece that, I'm, that it is. That's why it's hard to read because it's like, I'm noticing that the way that it's written is like this, uh, it's like half of it is in, is in, uh, italics so it's like a it's like an interesting it's like actually you almost have to read it with two voices but it's, it's but there's some important. kind of playing with syntax thing going there around, is a know, playing with syntax is, thing yeah. indeed yeah um a hard one to read out loud but it, it sounds interesting no 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 it's yeah. definitely like i could put a picture of it on the on there because it's like totally needs like two different it's like two different Almost like two different poems coming in together, like blended into one poem. Let's see. So does that book have more than one poem by a person? It does, or yeah. Yeah, here, let me give you another one here. This is interesting. The way it's written in like, in like, it's like written in like four, three or four different columns. Again, almost as if they're written for like multiple voices, you know? Um, let me read this one called the blue house of the tree the parrot of a bone the monkey hair of of a Christ 
seated posture, reclining posture, luscious. In the still of life, unlicivious, lock of her hair. These sharpened points, white hands of, of the portrait, death above in the vine, in the root, of a balance, of melancholia, of lipstick, curls of a mare, pulse of a blood heart, connector, as one is always falling, but spits out, teeth of shell, float in amphorae, planted in urn of shells, suckling be the death mask at last, to be seen, to be heard, to reach, float in the white skirt, swoop of folds, variety, koyashan, scroll, silent. Want to see that for a second? Yeah. So I think like this is probably one of these ones where you can, did you read it down or you read it across? Oh yeah, you can probably read it two different ways. You did it which way? You said of the tree. I went, well, I went one, 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 one. Yeah, so you did of the tree, the parrot of a bone, the monkey hair of, of a Christ, but maybe you could do of the tree, the monkey, seated posture, those sharpened points. I think it's one of those ones you can, wow, wow. You can read either way, right? You can read it. <laughs> yeah, like that. You can read it down. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I, I always like those. Those are nice. Yeah, no, it looks like it's it's... Because it it works it, it works both ways in the, but it's totally different yeah that's that's cool I, I had this those, assignment yeah. I was gonna I was gonna I had this project that I wanted people to do and it was like I wanted I wanted to assign thirteen words uh you have to write a poem that's thirteen words but that can work in any order that sounds you, well, you just gotta write one poem you just, got, you just gotta write one poem. But the 13 words can work in any order? Yep. Mm. Wow, that sounds almost impossible. <laughs> no, it's not impossible. <laughs> well, because that's a lot of... what's. I, I'm not good at uh, my st- statistical math. Maybe not any, yeah, okay. How many permutations are in 13 maybe, words? Sorry, maybe, not, maybe I was thinking not 13 words. Maybe I was thinking like 7 words. Well, maybe. maybe yeah, words. the less you do, but it's still going to be hard, right? Because... You're going to be limited by parts of species. Yeah, that's true. But you could certainly do one where, I mean, that's why those kind of exercises are nice with the Collins Rose, because it can only be read a few different ways. But, yeah, but it is neat when you have something that can be read yeah. multiple ways. Well, I say pick up this book. I think this is a, this is a, this book is full of avant-garde writing that's really inspiring visually, and uh, just reading about the biographies of these women in this book, uh, it's just really inspiring. There's like a lot of work on the page that takes some uh, it takes some liberties. There's a lot of constellated text in this book. Uh, there's a lot of projected verse type things and little like stage play type things like that one. There's like definitely definitely those pieces are definitely for multiple voices, um, more script type things and more visual work on, on the page that you can't really necessarily uh, read but you can read in a different way. And yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. I think it's I think it's like a really renegade type of book. I like it. This. <laughs> All right, two more poets. <laughs> All right. Um this author actually she has a book and that 
one book of hers is hundreds of dollars uh she keeps going out of print she uh i think is totally underrated and i um feel for because she's like a footnote in history but she is the uh biracial multiracial black niece of these famous abolitionists that everyone talks about the grim key sisters and angela and our angelina uh and sarah grim key and they were unique in the fact not only were they abolitionists they completely left the south and were like we're not doing this we're not going to be any part of it and um she is a descendant of these women and her mother actually married a biracial uh, man and i she wrote if she's uh unique in the fact that she wrote for about a solid 20 years and then just disappeared she became a recluse she stopped writing wow. she never wrote it um, again but she would write for the crisis during the harlem renaissance the beginning of it and she was and when i first saw her it was years and years ago and i actually kind of forgot about her but she was featured in The New Negro by Elaine or Alan Locke, the philosopher of the Harlem Renaissance. And again, she went out of um, print and she kind of just disappeared. And I never quite knew why, but when you do more research, you find out it's because they felt her point too sapphic. Uh, <laughs> they were like, slowing down. So uh, they just kind of quietly suppressed her and hid her and so um i hope one day that you know we start reading her more but now you can find her online and if you can find which um you can get at the usually university library it's a new negro by elaine Locke. you'll be able to find some of her work but um the point i'm going to read by her is a short piece yay the eyes of my regret Always at dusk, the same tearless experience, the same dragging the feet up the same well-worn path to the same well-worn rock, the same crimson or gold dropping away of the sun, the same tints, rose, saffron, violet, lavender, gray, meeting, mingling, mixing mistily. Before me, the same blue, black, cedar, rising jackly to a point. Over it, the same slow unlitting of twin stars, Two eyes, unfathomable, soul-searing. Watching, watching, watching me. The same two eyes that draw me forth against my will. Dusk after dusk. The same two eyes that keep me sitting late into the night. Chin on knees. Keep me there lonely, rigid, tearless, numbly, miserable. The eyes of my regret. And um, I think that piece kind of sums it up for she. Um, loved her father and she was very dedicated to him and the um most of those who write about her say that when she wrote these poems and her father realized right away what was going on he made her promise never to um, give in to those feelings and so she kept her promise but oh, wow. yeah so that may be another reason why she just quit writing and disappeared and moved and uh, she moved to New York and she just kind of faded off but uh, she is one of the predecessors of uh, Harlem Renaissance and the second poem 
I just signed Locket's another short piece of hers at April. Toss your gay heads, brown girl trees, toss your gay lovely heads, shake your brown slim bodies, stretch your brown slim arms, stretch your brown slim toes. Who knows better than we with the dark, dark bodies what it means when April comes the laughing and the weeping once again at our hearts. <laughs> and um, like I said, I just, I enjoy her and I see that we're studying Locke again. So hopefully we get to do a new publishing of the new Negro since that's such a huge thing with the Harlem Renaissance. And hopefully she'll come out of the woodwork. But for yeah, right yeah. now, yeah, she's uh, still, it's kind of, if you could find some old copies of the crisis or of the new Negro, then you Did you see her. Did she write a lot a lot in the 20 years that she was writing? Yeah, she wrote a play on lynching. She wrote all these novels on um, on working class and on uh, lynching. And they actually have her as maybe being an influence of Richard Wright because okay. she was so uh, visceral and detailed with the inner workings and especially on relations. But she... Uh, Disappeared, and I know it happened a lot during the Harlem Renaissance. Certain writers would tick off those who were chosen. One of them was Wallace Thurman. Zora Neale Hurston, for a moment, made DeBoer a little bit upset. He kind of suppressed her and, and pushed her away. We we say her name all the time now, but I think we forget that she disappeared for a solid thirty years before Alice Walker went and found the pauper's grave and was like, "Hey, we need to start." Um, studying her again. So there's a lot of female poets during the Harlem Renaissance time that kind of just... Someone had, well, to, yeah, someone the, had to put their stamp on it. Yeah, and, so... You know what's funny about that whole thing, though, is that you you know, you, 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 you nailed it. You are like, well, you got to go back to these original magazines. So like, that, yeah. so, like, that's an interesting thing because, you know, this can happen all the time, you know, like, where they'll find a new poem that's published by Bukowski in some old magazine some you know some like mimeograph printed thing that there's only a hundred copies of and it's something that he typed down in a typewriter and gave it to him and that's the only copy that they had and you know what i mean so like there's always like weird stuff coming up but like things like that it shows you it shows you the value of going back into like these original early publications but if it wasn't for alice walker if it wasn't for people who had access to this stuff or stumbled on a yeah, stack of these old journals that they read through, yeah. and then they were like, "Well, there's somebody, there's some people, important people in here, you know that, you know that we don't know about." Yeah, and um, I think that is true, and especially with changing what we describe as um, the classics or the modern classics are what is seen. If we don't, then we will lose out on quite a few writers and poets that were at during their time and contemporary times respected but may have been suppressed or moved because of different reasons and so the I yeah I would love to see that. I know they're trying to slowly pin and and put all those magazines together from that time because there were so many magazines that started and shut down. Uh of course Hughes had one of the longer running ones, Locke had one of the longer running ones. Dubois, but there's people like uh, Thurman and Richard Nugent. All of them came out with these li- these little independent magazines 
that. I really hope that one day we can just gather all of them together to be able yeah. to see the amount that was put out during that time. Yeah, hopefully someone's doing a good job digitizing them. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we can continue going through them even if the physical magazines start to fall apart, but I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully. Someone's got them. Hopefully someone's got them. All right, well, I have one last poet for us here. Uh, Adam Cornford, who is a British poet. Um, uh, odd little trivia biographical thing. He's the great, great grandson of Charles Darwin. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I, You know, I think he, some people know about him, but he, he seems to not be that well known. I really only, I didn't really know about him, except I really like Will Alexander, who I think I, I talked about in a past Six Poets episode, and I was reading an interview of his, and he, he mentioned that he really liked Adam Cornford and made me uh, search it out and, and find it. But he only published three collections of poetry, um, Shooting Scripts in 78, which is this really cool, um, it's from Blackstone Press. It's this really cool, almost, chapbook style thing although it's longer than a chapbook i guess it's, it's cool it's bordering on a it's a full-length book but it's got all these great like collage black and white illustrations throughout yeah, it's it too. A gorgeous little thing and then city he had a book with city lights in 88 which is probably i think as well his most well-known book and then in 97 he had decision forest from pantograph uh i think that's the only books he ever published um, and then I think I, the only other time I've ever run across him, I think in Big Bridge, maybe in the early 2000s or something, he edited an, he edited an issue of that of Big Bridge that was about neo-surrealism. And he claimed himself as a neo-surrealist. And then he sort of, he chose a bunch of different poets who he, he saw as being neo-surrealists and wrote a little essay about that, which was kind of cool. So I'm going to read one short one from the from the earlier one from shooting script and then I want to read my favorite one from animations. So this one's just kind of, I don't even know which one to do from this. Let's try this one. History. Below me with shut eyes, you toss your head, pressing no after no into the blank pillow. Your breathing is a road where I become the rider on my own runaway body. My jaws lift, straining ahead of my huge collarbone. Tugging the harness of sinew, sweat darkens along my ribs, blind as your sleep. I gallop toward you forever under the collapsing air of the centuries. All right, and then the second one is kind of longer, but it's 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 the best. <laughs> so I apologize that it's a long poem, but a jobless man looks at the capital markets. Between the sphere of the fixed stars with its blue heraldry and clean mineral music and the disk of the earth I stand on, buckled, pitted, smeared with green oxide like a long-dead emperor's penny, revolves the sphere of capital. Slow, vague mornings I peer into this realm from the business pages observatory. Capital's air is as clear and heavy as silica gel, its creatures translucent. 
Also, an immense interpenetration of medusa trees, tall polyps quarreling ropily over root space. Each one is a shifting mosaic of ownership. The common shares, blank faceted, exhaled in bee clouds of new issue as the price rises. Preferred stock is dragonflying among the high branches. Debentures crawl stolidly like robot stag beetles, clustered bonds pulse in unison. Polyhedrons of hearts are fattened in ancient pools out of sight. Here an underwriting shoves up a furled secretive head from the lumpy webbing of investment firms and explodes in a radial scatter of sales that branch and burrow through the secondary market. There are some smaller corporations not wetly together to sprout a holding company. A carnivorous willow, nearby a glittering trunk loops constrictor-wise around sick giants five times its weight, paralyzes them with a bristle of injected offers, then digests them externally and moves on, leaving grisly unprofitable litter. These life cycles jitter hypnotically, reconstructed instant by instant as securities are converted to cash and back again. This makes it hard to see the countless fine tendrils reaching down into our world from the forest's high-altitude root mat, like billions of gauzy catheters draining and trickling, all that sometimes make them visible is the way they suffuse with a faint rust-pink pulse, a continuous trembling vein rise, right where they connect to my neighbor's wrists and temples poised in front of her office terminal and to her son's as he swivels from griddle to counter under an orange logo deep in the rich soil of work. I want those hollow hairs branching from me again, curving inconspicuously into the sky. At least then wages would bloom as cool as ether on my palms. My hands would stop curling like terrified spiders. I'd be back in a web, even if not my own. Yes, I want to be hooked up to that cannibal paradise. Who knows? I might be lifted on its cords into the writhing, scrabbling thick of it. I might feel my blood replaced altogether with its clear and efficient secretion then be set down again as one of its chosen, a walking spore in a crisp white shirt and a silk tie, my speech a hymn to pure amount. Near midnight, I watch the closing report. Up there, the windowing air shifts and the forest glistens, how fragile it is, like the actual chlorophyll forest busily being erased on its behalf. Northern fir needles choking brown and falling away, equatorial flower archives going up in smoke. But heaven's agile groves continue to feast on our routines, and I, with my wallet aching like a junkie's collapsed vein, am also among the endangered. I've never, uh, I don't think I've ever read such a decadently surreal anti-capitalist. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> Uh, so pretty rich, Adam Corford. So that's another. Uh, that's another six poets that maybe you haven't heard of before. So check them out. Check all of them out. Yeah, we'll post some pictures of the books. You look them up. All right. Show notes. Cool. You better take pictures. I'm doing it. So, thank you, Rosalind, for yeah, joining us today, and thank you for you bringing those poets and telling us about. And we'll see you all again next week. Hopefully.